being old, fed from a mashed plate, as an old mare might droop across a fence to the dull pastures of its ignorance. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. Um, you just heard Kevin McNeil there, the wondrous Kevin McNeil, reading the beginning of Ian Crichton Smith's poem, Old Woman, which is the perfect introduction to today's text, which is Ian Crichton Smith's great novel, Consider the Lilies. Yes, the Ford prefect of the Dent Tour continues as we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Burn Unlimited, one of Scotland's leading independent publishers who sponsor this podcast. Yes, um, and Ian Crichton-Smith is one of Scotland's most prolific and celebrated authors of the, the 20th century, though I think we can say that he's kind of quietly celebrated now. He's prob- his name's probably not as well known now as it was while he was alive and writing, but his work's on um, it's a regular on the school curriculum, and in fact I studied his poems in higher English, including Old Women, which we've just heard, and a whole lot of his work is still currently in print, and there is a lot of it. As we say, he's, he was very prolific, and he wrote both in Gaelic and in English as a poet, as a playwright, as a short story writer, and as a novelist. Consider the Lilies was Ian Crichton-Smith's first novel, published in 1968, and it takes the Highland clearances of the early 19th century as its subject. The clearances are an episode in Scottish history that remains shocking and emotive Mm -hmm. because it was a displacement of a people and a culture that had been rooted for centuries. It shapes the Highlands and Islands as we know them today, too. There have been numerous histories of the clearances, Mm -hmm. and we are tremendously privileged to be able to talk to one of the most recent and one of the most preeminent Mm -hmm. Berlin author, Professor James Hunter. (laughs) Award-winning. We'll be talking to him about the award-winning Set Adrift Upon the World, The Sutherland Clearances. And there will be an opportunity to hear more of Kevin McNeil reading Ian Crichton-Smith's poems, including The Rest of Old Woman, later on. So, as we've said, um, Ian Crichton-Smith was exceptionally prolific, and I actually wonder if that's got something to do with the fact that maybe he's not as well-known nowadays. You know, he's not like a sort of Lewis Grassic Gibbon or a Muriel Spark or a Hugh McDermott. People who are, I don't know, maybe they they are more famous because they've kind of got what you could consider a signature work. Right. um, Whereas with Crichton-Smith, he's... Probably not. It's more dispersed. Yeah, like it's more of a. He's got a huge body of work yeah. that you can delve into, um, and there's always as well a bit of a debate as to what his primary form mm. is. I mean, when I was at school and I studied him, I studied him primarily as a poet. Yeah, and I think that I've mostly come across him anthologized mm, yeah. and possibly anthologized in Gaelic, so I was not able to read any of it ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I think it's. But nowadays, I think his prose is coming more into the fore because it's. I think it's now it's his short stories that you study yeah. at school. Interesting. Um, and I think he himself as well thought of poetry and short stories as his uh, premier uh, form. And um, he's recorded as saying that I am not a novelist, but I like the challenges in that form. And what I really see myself is 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 more of a short story and a poet. Um, but maybe that, sh- again, it shows the primacy of the novel and literary culture nowadays. Yeah, I think it pretty much does. I mean, novel has sort of in some ways become synonymous with book. Yeah. I think it is helpful, though, to think about this short novel as being from someone who's really a story writer, mm. so a master of the short story form. Yeah. Um, and that's not just because the novel is short, um, but because of the way that it's structured mm. and the way that it's there are just these sort of beautiful episodes yeah that stand alone as little stories or memories or mm. anecdotes and i i like the how he says in in the quotation you just read you know he says i like the challenges in that form yeah um that he and you can tell from reading consider the lilies that he's thinking about how this story which is sort of taking place at a time when the novel is developing mm. um has is sort of being absorbed into the novel 
you know, how, how the memories fit in and how the church and the song and mm. all of these things are all in there. Yeah. And novel's sort of capacious and able to hold all of that. Well, so yeah. maybe it's about time that we put forward Consider the Lilies then mm-hmm. as his signature work, which could be as famous as your Primes of Miss Jean Brodie's and your Sunset Songs and all that kind of thing. Absolutely. Because Consider the Lilies is, it is still considered a bit of a classic in Scotland and it's routinely included in the, the best Scottish novel lists, though it's always sort of near the bottom. It's never like in the top ten, you know, with your Harry Potters and your Sunset Songs. Right, um, Harry Potter, that well-known Scottish novel. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, anyway, the, but the books that you find in these lists... The, the most the most interesting ones are sort of near the bottom of the top 100 or the top 50 anyway. Those are the ones yeah. that you... That, that well, those you, are the ones that jog your memory. And yeah. You, instead of going, oh, of course. Yeah. It's the same yeah. with album list or television right. show list. It's always... The, you, the top 10, it's always... A ve- it's just very mm. obvious. Right. Whereas you get the real stars of the show a little bit down below. And I think that might... Could be said with Consider the Lilies. <laughs> It's a teeny tiny novel. It is. It's less than one hundred and fifty pages, yeah. and uh, amazingly, he wrote it only in eleven days, which makes you feel really lazy, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I think he must have had a tight writing schedule in his summer holidays, yeah. and it still packs a real emotional punch in short and such a short amount of time and space, and as well as saying something really. Um, profound about the nature of power, um, both political, religious and your own personal power Mm -hmm. Um, it it tells the story or it's it's a week in the life of this old woman called Mrs Scott and you you don't really get an awful lot of novels about old women either which is you know quite a radical thing to do Um, so Mrs Scott she's an old woman she lives by herself in the Highlands in the, in the early 19th century. She's widowed and her son has emigrated to Canada, so she's very much alone. Um, and then it opens with her receiving the news from the estate's factor, the infamous Patrick Seller, that she's to be put out of her house to make way for sheep, which is what happened across the Highlands in the early 19th century. Um, and she's a highly religious woman, um, and so she decides to seek help from her village elder and then her minister, and neither of them offer her comfort or help right. in different ways, which highlights the sort of hypocrisies of the church. Absolutely, and particularly given that both of them are also going to be put out of their homes as well. Yeah, I mean, it's the not church that is they're, going to move too. Yeah, yeah, it's not that they're, um, what's the word, they're not saving, from Yeah, this. they're not saving their own skins, but no. at the same time... They don't offer help or, or comfort. And so in a daze, she falls into a river and she's rescued um, by the McLeod family, who are quite controversial because it, the family's headed by Donald McLeod, who is an atheist um, and who's heading his own protest campaign at the Clearances. But through their care from this family and just remembering her life, she finds strength to carry on, to, to persevere and to live with what will happen. Anyway, that's a brief taster of the novel. Um, but first let us let's have a little bit more on Ian Crichton Smith. Right. He is uh, known primarily as an island writer mm. and um, as someone who hails from Lewis. Uh, yeah. But he was actually born in Glasgow in 1928 and was moved to Lewis when he was two years old. Yeah. <laughs> um, his father died when he was young and so he was raised with his brothers by a stern mother um, who became a huge influence on his work Mm. um, and, you know, whose presence shaped his life as well. Yeah. Uh, Many of his poems and stories and Consider the Lilies itself uh, are populated by older women who could be considered harsh and unforgiving, uh, having experienced a certain a large amount of suffering in their lives. Very recurrent theme in his work. Yeah. And uh, he won a scholarship to the high school in Stornoway, uh, taking him away from his home village. And from there, he went on to study at Aberdeen University, mm-hmm. uh, where he really threw himself into a creative life um, and started to throw off the constriction of his island upbringing. Uh, he often thought of himself as an as an outsider there, though. Yeah. Um, and much of his work deals with alienation, loneliness, 
uh, and feeling that you're not in control of your own destiny. Yeah. Uh, themes which are really at the centre of Consider consider the Lilies. Yeah. Though it's a novel about the Highland clearances, Ian Cretton Smith himself declares that it wasn't a historical novel. Yeah, he's really at pains to emphasise that in the preface. Um, yeah. And with, with sort of typical modesty, and, you know, modesty is generally the hallmark of prefaces, um, <laughs> he says, I'm not competent to do a historical study of the period. It's a fictional study of one person an old woman who is being evicted. I find it interesting that he felt he had to include that, like he was sort of preempting any sort of criticism or something like that, mm. and or explaining his motivations to people before they read the yeah. book. Um, and many people picked up um, the fact that there are anachronisms in the novel. You know, there's mm. um, grandfather clocks which support were not invented at the time i didn't know that yeah <laughs> or think post- they're victorian right okay or postmen i didn't know that either that they weren't av- available at the time or melodians Which i didn't know just a wonderful word i know <laughs> so the, the anachronisms actually don't mean that much to me because i wasn't aware that they even were anachronisms mm. And to me, anyway, I, I kind of find it a bit of an over-fussy reading, you know. To yeah. me, like, for in fiction especially, truth and pedantry are yes. not the same thing. <laughs> and truth, or, like, a, the kind of fictional truth that you want in novels is much more important. Yes, so. and funnily <laughs> enough, that's the kind of thing that Walter Scott would have said in his prefaces. But uh, where I think that um, it's possible that uh, Crichton Smith is sort of um, tipping the tipping tip, the hat. Yeah, a little bit is when he um, addresses in the preface the problem of verisimilitude in language. Mm. What he says is that the style of the novel is quote rather simple and almost transparent. Mm. He says the reason the reason for this was that I wished the events to be seen as if through the mind of the old woman. And he ponders the options available for representing her interior monologue, which, of course, would have been in Gallic. Yeah. And so in some ways, it's just a sort of linguistic question. You Mm. know, how do I convey to my reader that this is a woman who thought and spoke? In this way at this time. Yes. And in, yes, in Gallic and in this exact historical setting. Mm. Um, And he sort of lays out these options. And he says, I could have produced a really sort of stylized artificial English that might have been like flowery and archaic and sort of yieldy this and that and the other. (laughs) Um, I'm glad he didn't do that. Yeah. Or he could have written in sort of straightforward English, but thrown in a lot of Gaelic as if to sort of constantly remind the reader that um, this is a Gaelic speaker and, and then he says, sort of wryly, he says, if I had been a James Joyce, <laughs> um, I would have invented a new language for this. Um, but what he, in the end, decides to go for is, a, quote, a simple English. And I think this is interesting because the simplicity of that language, um, it's, it is simple and transparent, but it's, it's like sort of almost luminous yeah. too. Um, I think there's a sparsity and a spaciousness to it that allows the imagery and thoughts to shine in their own right. Yeah, I'm so glad he didn't do any of that linguistic things that he, that he said he could have done. Yeah. I think it, it is so much more powerful for its simplicity. And I mean, the other thing, even though we have Ian Crane Smith banging on about this is not a historical novel, <laughs> is the fact that he includes um, real life people in the book. So Mrs. Scott is fictional, but um, the villain factor, Patrick Seller, he was very much real, and so was the protesting hero of um, Donald MacLeod. Both of them were um, very real, and you can be found in historical records and legal documents and in the contemporary press and in written histories of the clearances, they are they were major characters in the real life story. Yeah. Um and my favourite moment in the book is uh, between this hero and villain character when they meet finally near the end of the book. Um and actually reading it it still feels really pertinent to the times that we're living in. Um I'll just read this section here. He thought of the day Patrick Seller had come to his house. This was the enemy, this little man, servant of those who were greater than he. 
We know about you, Seller had said. We know about your writings, but there's nothing you can do anyway. I can tell the truth. The truth, Seller had laughed. The truth, what's that? Don't you know that the day has come when the truth is what we care to make it? Surely a man like you, who has a reputation of being an atheist, ought to know that. It was as if for a moment, by a strange wayward luxury, Seller had almost condescended to argue with someone from the other side, whom he recognised to be reasonably intelligent, as if knowing he would win anyway, he could afford the pleasure of debate. No, MacLeod, you can't oppose the movement of the age, and that movement is against your old world survival. Do you know, some day, one of you will come to me, having returned from Canada with a map in your hand and a Balmoral on your head, and you'll thank me for having put you in the way of making a fortune. Why, we might even have a glass of whiskey together and talk of old times. What about those who won't come back and have lost their maps? My dear MacLeod, the progress of civilization demands sacrifice. Where would the world be if there was no one willing to move into the future? Can you not understand that? Is it moving into the future to send these people into hovels by a sea which is strange to them and to a fishing to which they have never been used? They will grow used to it. The human mind is infinitely adaptable. And then it goes on where MacLeod says, Oh yes, Mr Seller, there is another kind of law. And which is that? Seller asked, turning at the door. Perhaps you don't know about it. Have you ever read any poetry? We in the Highlands are very fond of poetry. Poetry? He was uncomprehending. Well, I'll tell you. There are some poets, we call them bards, who have written songs about you. Did you know that? Shall I quote a bit? Patrick Seller, I see you roasted in hell like a herring and the oil running over your head. That, of course, is only a part of it. You see, Mr. Seller, you will become a legend. You have become a legend. Are you flattered? Is that perhaps what you wanted? You talk about the future. Yes, true enough. You too will have a future. Children will sing about you in the streets in different countries, countries you will never visit. They may even recite poems about you in the schools. Yes, your name will be on people's lips. And then he says, who reads these Gallic poems anyway? And <laughs> this is the best bit. I know. And then McLeod says, who indeed, nevertheless, they exist. And who knows, perhaps one day it will be fashionable to read them. The descendants of the class who employ you may, be, may take them up out of idleness. You never know what idle people will do. You see, that is a law you don't know about. It is also a law of the future. Which is amazing. I know, I love that. That whole... The law of the future. Because Patrick Seller is such a sort of future-orientated person. Yeah. And he's just spouted all this stuff about yeah. progress and rational improvement. And, but he, he's, you know, he, he's very much so uh, blinkered in it. It is almost evangelical. Yeah. Um, and, and, well, it's evangelical capitalism. Yeah. That's what it is, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you'll be, be grateful that I made you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, that I am civilising you. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, and the dramatic irony in that, and just the sort of sense of literary tradition there. I know, you wish that meeting did happen like that. (laughs) Yeah, Gallic tradition, Gallic poetry, but also, you know, know, the fact that this is in a novel is very, Mm. like, close to the surface there at that point as well. Of course, the twist here between them is that, like, uh, or the reversal here in this conversation is that while well, you've got Patrick Seller being um, the lawyer with a person with law on their side. Yeah, that's repeated all the time. Um, Law's on my side, yeah. Yeah, and like this sort of economic progress. Um, that really, um, Donald MacLeod is the sort of rational mm. hu- voice of humanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and he's he's really a sort of proto-modern character in that, you know, definitely the choice to make him an atheist yeah. kind of brings him I know, even into though, the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, we, we must say, even though Donald MacLeod did exist, um, he's, Ian Crichton-Smith making him an atheist was a fictional choice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he just he calls out this project um, mm. and how the idea of general improvement, um, which is a sort of present that's orientated towards the future, doesn't take into account that these individual lives um, matter. Yeah, mm. and that they have a fullness to yeah. them, uh-huh. and that um, both the lives and the whole culture is rooted in the past, mm. and that to transplant 
is to really devastate that, mm. like eradicate, literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> eradicate it. But as we say, and as Ian Crichton Smith says, um, this book is very much still a story of the interior life of, of, of an old woman. And the, there are so many fantastic moments throughout the book where you really get inside her head. It's a really sympathetic portrayal and, and yet at the same time very clear-headed. He doesn't shy away from the fact that, you know, she had a very ch- hard childhood, which creates a very uncompromising view on how to live. Yeah. She can't, it's not that she revels in suffering, but it's like she feels that suffering is life. Yeah. Um, I mean, she has moments of fleeting joy, um, but she and she doesn't. But she doesn't allow herself to to hold on to those, um, to hold on to joy for very long. One of the, the sort of more most heartbreaking moments is the the part where she recollects um, her courtship and the marriage proposal from who from her husband. It's like she allowed herself a portion of happiness. It's like she rations it. Yeah. And then she has this marriage where she doesn't allow herself to to live as spontaneously and in the moment and as joyfully as her husband. The way that these things are, are sort of presented and recounted, it's just so convincing. Yeah, the characterization um, is so real and true. Yeah, and the, the conflict that exists in the way that she recounts the conversation the narrative will give the words of the conversation then immediately the sort of undercurrent of what she was really thinking yeah and um there's a conflict there between like the sort of love and the connection that she feels towards the people that she's Mm. talking to who are her nearest and dearest you Mm. have family and her neighbors and but there's this sort of real reticence and pride and difficulty um and it just means that she doesn't say these things. Yeah. Like so the speech is curt and mm. bald yeah. and and reticent. And there's but there's such sort of liveliness and passion and and uh, acuity. Mm. In, 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 in life. Yeah. yeah. And you know, for me one of the most um sort of impressive scenes in the novel, really. It's quite central actually it's Mm. in chapter 10 yeah um and um is that of uh her son's departure to canada by boat yeah um and it's a it's really a set piece yeah um uh but the speech sort of thing um is there in in, at the center as well and she's giving him all this mundane advice about eat your greens (laughs) and and make good friends yeah only only be friends with good people be warm and Um, practical and, and yet all of this is happening amidst um, sort Oops. of ceremonial... Yeah, so many people of, saying goodbye. It's like, yeah. And and, and lots of... The, and everything is sort of laden with... I mean, I think that Ian Crichton-Smith in 1968 is sort of thinking back to all the representations yeah. of... He ch- the Highland clearances, yeah, you he, know, it is yeah. like watching a tableau mm. or looking at some kind of great oil painting, yeah. I think. Um, but, like, the boat is called SS Hope, and there's a piper, yeah. um, but there's also a drunk and some giggling children, which sort of, you know, undermines the the weightiness, makes it banal and all the more tragic. Yeah, the, the um, big, the, the hugeness of what's happening yeah. and the little details that just make it part of our life. It was the last boat, and as it reached the ship, the piper suddenly stopped playing. There was a great silence. As if awakened from a dream, she looked around her and saw the dozen or so people left, all women and children. The piper began to put his pipes away. Without thinking, as she watched the ship, the wind stirring its sails, and watched the loch and seagulls swooping low over it, she began to sing the old hundreds. Mm. And then... Ian Crichton-Smith quotes the old hundreds in Gaelic, which I am not going to read. (laughs) That's Um, enough. He then goes on. Through blinding tears, she heard the tune being raised by the other women. The piper was standing stiffly at attention on the shore. She stopped singing because her voice was beginning to crack, and it was only then that she heard the answering voices floating across the water, the two groups, those on the ship and those on shore, 
united across the water by the psalm, amongst the best-loved and gravest of all Gallic psalms. Seagulls wove edgy patterns across the psalm, and behind it, too, one could hear the restless movement of the water as it flowed to and from the beach. When it was ended, they all, as if by instinct, turned away in in the direction of home. She kept a little behind, wishing to be by herself. She always believed in keeping her griefs private. That night was the worst in her life. To come to the door and know that she would find no one, to see a house completely empty, it was like coming to her tomb while she was still alive. Oh, I mean, that's just heartbreaking. Yeah. But so well written as well. You can really, you can, you can see the song in the air as they're singing it to each other. Yeah. It's really beautiful. So, at, at, and at this point, she goes home and reads the Bible chapter after chapter aloud as if it were some kind of drug and always in front of her flickered the white wings of the ship like an angel which concealed in its hold a devilish plague. Mm. Oh. And so at that time when um, her son goes away, she finds comfort and succour in religion. And religion obviously plays a huge part in the in the novel as well, particularly... Um, as probably Ian Crichton Smith wanted to, to show how people's lives are managed yes. by it, just in the way that the factors and the the lords and ladies mm-hmm. are managing their lives, um, you know the religion manages their life too. Yeah. So Ian Crichton Smith uses consider the lilies to highlight the hypocrisies or the unhelpfulness of the church at the time of the clearances, absolutely, um, and which makes it even more of a tragedy because. Um, Mrs. Scott has is confronted with the fact that what she's really worshipped and and held on to for so long in her life is not actually really there for her in her time of need. Yes, it was really helpful to talk to Jim Hunter about this. Yeah. Um, to help explain the church's attitude towards the evictions, um, as Jim told us, the historical Donald MacLeod. His writings were tremendously critical of the established church's behaviour mm. and its sort of general attitude to the people um, or to uh, to the southern clearances um, and what the people should do. And Jim said that there was a wider pattern across the highlands of ministers putting across the notion that people should put up no resistance yeah. to planned evictions. Yeah. Um, And he suggested that it's possible um, that there was a view that it was all part of God's plan and on one hand, and that eviction was a just punishment for people's general wickedness. No, I can't believe that was said like that. I mean, just I mean, it's a very Calvinist outlook that that people should suffer so that they should just bear right this. and suffer and be still yeah right uh huh and, yeah. and bear this this event that was happening in their life that they didn't ask for that that it wasn't deserved and you know they weren't even asked about or you know discussed yeah. with. and it's interesting to think about Elizabeth Melville um, in our last episode yeah. and how she was talking about punishment and suffering and endurance yeah and I think it's weird because it's like she was talking about this very active kind of Christianity mm. you know it's like but I will suffer and endure isn't it's a sort of active passive thing it's like partly yeah. passive but it's also like a resist you know yeah there's a difference between enduring what life throws at you against what the clearances were all about and just sort of saying, no, this just has to happen. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the ministers, yeah, they were, you know, you can can be a little bit um, understanding of their position because they were caught... If you want to be sympathetic. Yeah, (laughs) because they were caught between the parishioners on one hand and the landlords that appointed them on the other. Um, You know, so they were, you know, the landlords were the ones that paid their stipends for for them. And so it shouldn't be really a surprise that when it came to a battle between the parishioners and the and the, the the landlords that the church would side on the power of where the money lay, where the law lay, because, 
You know, yeah. they probably didn't really have that much of a choice either. Right, well, they were the established church. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Jim was really careful to say that it's dangerous to make sweeping generalisations. Yeah. Um, not only just in history in general, but particularly <laughs> about religion um, and this kind of thing. Um, but that in his research, he had found evidence of ministers mostly being on the side of the estate. Mm. Um, and he suggested that it's possible that the Calvinist theology did make resistance anathema. Mm. Yeah. Uh, grin and bear it. Yeah. Not just grin. Just <laughs> no, <bear> no grinning. <laughs> Finally, Jim also mentioned um, the, the sort of uh, theme uh, or trend, I suppose, that in writers with a strong sense of traditional Gallic culture and Gallic consciousness... There's a sense that the established church has been generally hostile to mm. much of Gallic tradition. Jim also suggested, there's a line of thought, that the free church was partly established in the 1840s as an attempt to come to terms with what had been going on in the clearances mm. or in the decades leading up to the 1840s. Okay. That the kind of evangelical Presbyterianism uh, that is the foundation of the free church mm. um, in which ministers were appointed by the congregations uh, rather than by yeah. landlords yeah. Um, became an, an alternative centre of identity in the wake of the collapse of the clan system mm. so it's a sort of alternative way of organising society and actually a more democratic one mm. in which people were more empowered yeah. Then again, at the same time, as Ian Crichton Smith's poetry really shows, yeah. um, it had its the own restrictions yeah. of the free church were in themselves problematic <laughs> yeah. and had a really, you know, psychic yeah. effect. Mm. We probably still deal with to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, very helpfully, Kevin McNeil has also selected um, to uh, read for us um, Ian Crichton Smith's poem poem of lewis which explores these themes poem of lewis here they have no time for the fine graces of poetry unless it freely grows in deep compulsion like water in the well woven into the texture of the soil in a strong pattern they have no rhymes to tailor the material of thought and snap the thread quickly on the tooth One would have thought that this black north was used to lightning crossing the sky like fish swift in their element. One would have thought the barren rock would give a value to the bursting flower. The two extremes, mourning and gaiety, meet like north and south in the one breast, milked by knuckled time, till dryness spreads across each ageing bone. They have no place for the fine graces of poetry. The great forgiving spirit of the word fanning its rainbow wing like a shot bird falls from the windy sky. The sea heaves in visionless anger over the cramped graves and the early daffodil, purer than a soul, is gathered into the terrible mouth of the gale. Hello, we're here with one of Berlin's most celebrated authors, uh, Jim Hunter, who is the author of many books on the Highlands, but the one we're going to talk about today is um, his latest, and it's a fantastic book on the Sutherland clearances called Set Adrift Upon the World. So thank you for, for coming to speak to us, Jim. As I said, you've written lots of books about the Highland um, communities over, over the years, um, but what made you decide to... Um, specifically look at the Sutherland clearances? Well, it it came about, I guess, because I became involved in 2005 in helping to set up the University of the Highlands and Islands, UHI, and in particular what's called the University's Centre for History, which Mm. is based in Dornoch in Sutherland. And then, so when I left the sort of active role I had in the Centre for History, I thought about writing something the obvious thing was to write about the Sutherland clearances, but also my way of a kind of thank you, in a sense, right. to Dennis MacLeod, who, but for whose good offices the thing wouldn't exist. And so uh, 
So that was the genesis of it, plus the the other person who I think was key to turning my mind to the possibilities of all of this, a man called John MacDonald, who's a crofter and retired postman in, in Rogert in Sutherland. Oh. And I've known John for a long, long time since we were both involved way back in the 1980s in setting up the Scottish Crofters Union. And John's a very keen local historian. And when we got our first group of students together and they, they met for a kind of induction session in Dornow, I persuaded John to show us around some of the sites of cleared townships right. in Strathbrona by way of an excursion. And uh, that same day, he showed us some documentation that he'd got together from the Sutherland archives. Uh, and in that was the, the story, or the bones of the story, that constitutes the first chapter of the book right. about a particular family. Yeah, that's... Well, the book opens, it's, it's a very visceral opening. It, kinda, it, was, it was kind of like a, a crime drama or something <laughs> like that. It's yeah. this great opening story <laughs> with um, the Ross family. Yeah. Um, if you could talk about that for a second. Well, the, the, that was the, the document that John showed me that day, quite a number of years ago now, mm. uh, in the Rogart area. That, that's what kind of began to make me think, gosh, it's actually possible. Uh, to do something that I would have thought prior to that was impossible. Yeah. It was possible to actually get quite close to the stories of actual individuals mm. and what happened to them. And the story of the Ross family as unfolded in these documents and in other material that I was able to find in other places is particularly dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so there is this this family who are being thrown out of a house and home and the, there are two wee girls and a baby involved mm. and you can get the, the detail of how that happened and mm. how one of the, the little girls, the, her name was Catherine and she was just three years old and they both, her and her sister who was five had whooping cough yeah. at this point and, and she dies, Catherine, the three year old. Yeah. And her father, who is elsewhere, when all this happens unavoidably, is say, writes to the Marquis of Sutherland, the Marquis of Stafford, rather. Yeah. <laughs> eventually, the first Duke of Sutherland, and who is ultimately behind all this, and writes to him in very strong and emotional terms about mm. what they've gone through. And then there's the whole story of how the Sutherland estate management fearing that he's going to create a oh, court nice. case and a whole <laughs> sort of what about publicity about this, all the efforts they go to to discredit him, mm. which are extraordinary uh, yeah. and, and successful in that he, he finally agrees to sort of withdraw all his accusations and it, it reminded me, as I say in the book, it reminded me a bit of the, the sort of uh, plot of Orwell's 1984. Yeah, well, it was. The, there's a lot of it that reads like a political thriller because of the way you, you lay out all the political machinations. Of, <laughs> well, well, uh, it's, well. A, it's, it's a very readable history. It's not. It's properly shocking. <laughs> well, I, I think it, it has to be, and of course, uh, I, I, I mean, it's something I believe very strongly that, that it, there is a. I mean, there are arguments and long-standing debates around mm. these sorts of issues yeah. amongst historians. And, of course, there is a school of thought that history should be written very dispassionately and, mm. and that there's some sort of objective reality out there waiting to be discovered. Yeah. I, I've, I've never really gone along with that. <laughs> I, I don't think there is a, an objective, purely factual an emotional, dispassionate history. Mm. Partly because mm. what what people want to know about history are what they want. The questions they want to ask are different. Mm. They change themselves yeah. as times change. You know what we want to know now about the First World War, say, isn't necessarily what people would have wanted to know in you know fifty years ago. Mm. So, uh, so it's the same with that, and and also I suppose say. It's 
it's a lot of this in my own case goes back to my sort of own Highland upbringing, not right. in Southern, but in another part of the Highlands in North Argyll. And they, and what I heard or learned about mm. the past then from my own family, and particularly from my grandfather, my mother's father, who right. lived with us when I was a wee boy. And I don't mean that I was at the age of eight hanging on his every word. I yeah. <laughs> I but it, it was in the air. More, but you kind yeah. of absorbed this. And, yeah. and I remember being, you know, being, being so struck by the fact that when I did, you know, at university, begin to get some sense of what academics were then writing about the Highlands. Right. And there wasn't an awful lot written at that time about the 19th century Highlands, but mm-hmm. it was so at odds with the whole story the sort of story that I'd heard. And, and so right. I was always kind of interested in trying to write about the islands in a way that's kind of academically reputable with lots of footnotes. But also is true, and as I see it anyway, to what people within the area. And how did you go about finding the stories of the, the people, you know, like the... Well, so you, you got the information about the Rosses... Well, well, yeah, paradoxically, of course, from the Sutherland Estates own archives. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, quite a lot of the stuff comes from there. There's a lot of other stuff as well. Eh? You know, one of the... I uh, was drawing heavily in, the, in that book about Sutherland and set adrift upon the world on legal documentation mm-hmm. from the time, particularly what are called precognitions. These are the, the kind of evidence statements that are taken in the run-up to court cases. Yeah. And uh, these, these, or some of them anyway, still survive because there were various protests and riots and mm-hmm. so on that went to criminal cases or prospective criminal cases. So uh, quite a lot of that material still survives and a lot of it is very detailed. And, and in that you get the, very much the voice of the people mm-hmm. because it's yeah. being taken down from their own words. The, it, it would normally be, I guess, in translation because most of them would have, would have, known, Gaelic, yeah, they yeah. Wouldn't have known any English mm-hmm. and would have been speaking in Gaelic and somebody would be translating it. But but it's as close it's as close to what they said yeah. as you mm-hmm. can possibly now find. And uh, and the you know, people wrote letters on occasion as well, mm-hmm. but, but it's mostly that kind of material. The newspapers also covered a uh, the events in Sutherland quite, quite substantially. Mm. The, the national, there was no local newspaper. Well, there was an Inverness paper, mm. but uh, the papers in the south in England devoted quite a lot of space to this. It was a bit of a cause celebre at the time. Yeah, it was, and and yet it didn't halt the clearances in any way. There wasn't a sort of victory for the people <laughs> at any point. <laughs> no way. Uh, uh, Sadly not. <laughs> though, though I think one of the things I wanted to emphasise was that it wasn't, you know, some, some of the stuff that's been written about Sutherland does tend to, to the view that the protests were very spontaneous and just sort of unorganised and didn't mm. really achieve anything very much. But I, I think that's an exaggeration. Eh? The, particularly, say, in the Strath of Kildonan, which I mentioned, mm-hmm. eh, when the protests broke out there at the beginning of 1813, they actually achieved quite a lot, mm-hmm. uh, not least in... Uh, they, they brought the then-planned evictions to a halt. Yeah. They managed to send an emissary to London. Uh, one of the things I try and bring out is that these were not... These were not impoverished, starving no, people at yeah. all. They were actually, by the standards of that time, some of them anyway, yeah. relatively well off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so they had the wherewithal to fund their delegates, as it were, to London. You know, the whole kind of thing, as it were, that still surrounds the Sutherland Queerances to this day, the notion that this was a terrible and awful event actually goes back to that time and, and these and it, it that perception was very much created by people who were hostile to what the estate management were trying to do and mm-hmm. managed to get publicity and attention and so on and managed to engineer escape routes for themselves to mm-hmm. North America though that was in some cases a pretty awful experience as well yeah, but, yeah. but nevertheless 
they were they weren't determined to make new lives for themselves. What they were determined not to do was take the sort of tiny diminutive crofts on rubbish yeah. land on the north coast that the Sutherland estate management was trying to persuade them to take. Yes. <laughs> One of the questions that I think I have about um, Set Adrift Upon the World, um, which is so sort of wonderfully evocative of a particular type of clearance is to what extent were clearances across the highlands did they resemble that in other places like how particular is what happened in Sutherland in comparison with other estates well I think the the unique feature of it is that it was so comprehensive and so well organized right well organized from the estate management point of view and that they were setting out to absolutely empty the entire mm. interior part of Sutherland, the Straths of Strath Neighbours, Strath of Cordona, Strath Bedona, of the many, well, of the thousands of people who were then living there. And these are the places that today, these places and the surrounding localities where all these folk once lived are now categorised as wild land. Yeah, <laughs> and, and as you said, it was a prosperous, actually quite yes. prosperous community. In other parts of the Highlands, was it more piecemeal, less systematic? Yes, it, it, it was nowhere quite as systematic, yeah. or, or indeed in most cases anything like as systematic as it mm-hmm. was in Sutherland. And I think it's the sheer scale of what was being done in Sutherland over a very short period of time, mm. because the, the real mass evictions were in the bulk of them were in 1819 and the rest in right. 1820. Yeah. And within a, within at that time, because it, you, the evictions always happened in round about May. Yes. At this time of year, as it happens, <laughs> and so so it was so compressed and and. Uh, and all of the, and and also it was being done by the family of the Marquis and the Marchioness, uh, who were the Marquis was one of the richest, very possibly the richest person in Britain at that time. Right. And from a media, from a press point of view, the press then wasn't the same as the press now, but nevertheless, <laughs> the the contrast between this. What this the wealth that resided with the family, and what they were doing to the people on the mm. estate in, in Scotland, that that's commented on over and over again at the time, and so the kind of sense that this was something almost apocalyptic and terrible, and the, and the burning of the houses that that's that, the other thing. you know it's ways and means no means and ends that's that's yeah. sort of the main yes. thing it's like yeah. okay you've had this idea on how to manage the land, but why do you have to yes, yeah. do it in such a... Well, it was a drastic way that it was yeah, done. Uh-huh. And, and the, the houses, I should stress, were, other than possibly in one or two particular circumstances, they weren't burned with anyone inside them. No. It was when the people yeah. were removed that they then burned the roofs of the houses to stop them being rebuilt. Because yeah. the, the key components were the timbers that right. held up the walls and the roofs and they which were very hard to replace. Mm. So if you once got rid of them, there was couldn't you couldn't mm. rebuild the houses. So, uh, but the spectacle of burning, you know, literally hundreds of houses mm. in in uh, in the locality itself, it was always called Blianelowski, the year of the burnings, yeah. or the the beginnings of all of this. Say what was planned in in the Strath of Cardonan in eighteen thirteen, the Napoleonic Wars are still mm. going on. Yeah. And of course, one of the things that is seized upon by critics of this in the media in the South is these are the people who are supplying the soldiers, yeah. who are helping to save us from the tyrant Napoleon. Yeah. And, and one of the Southern people who wrote extensively in the Southern press, in the English London press about this, a, you know, makes a point because this is just after Napoleon's had to retreat ignominiously from mm. Moscow. <laughs> and he, you know, he says explicitly what would have happened in Russia if instead of a loyal peasantry, the Tsar had, on, had only been able to look to flocks of sheep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so, a fair point. <laughs> so, uh, so it... Uh, it's the land fit for heroes thing again. Well, it, mm. absolutely, yes. And, mm. uh, you know, and of course, eventually those who 
these young men would come back to Sutherland and discover that the homes had, in some cases, vanished with yeah. the end of the internet, and their families had been dispersed. It's all that drama, and it is high mm. drama, that makes the Sutherland currency so attractive, I think, or has done mm. in, in the world of a creative writing. Yes. So yes. that, you know, novels, Neil Gunn, Ian Crowdsmith and others, a, or indeed a McGrath's great play, The Chivy at the Stag of the Yes, uh, yes. It's all of this, a, you know, gives all of this a kind of dramatic focus and in a way that perhaps, I don't mean that these things were less awful but they happened elsewhere. In, in some cases, what happened in the later stages of the queerances, particularly in the Hebrides and the mm. Islands, particularly in places like Banner and mm. Uist and so on, were actually worse. Mm. But, uh, but there is this kind of sense of these people burning the homes and all the rest that, you know, you can't help as a creative writer, I guess, responding, yeah. responding to that. Well, we are looking at Ian Crichton Smith's Consider the Lilies for this month's podcast and... Um, <laughs> Um, the, one of the great things about Consider the Lilies, not only is it a, a brilliant novel about this, this woman, but he also includes the real-life characters that were yes. involved in the, in, the, in the Sutherland clearances. Patrick and then, Seller on Yeah, and then you board. write about them and you give a much fuller picture of, of these people in Set Adrift Against the World. So Patrick Seller is obviously the villain of the piece in Consider the Lilies and then... He's kind. He's quite villainous and set adrift upon the world as well. He's he's beca- he has become a sort of legendary figure. I, I should certainly say, with regard to consider the Lewis, that uh, Ian Crichton Smith was one of my English teachers. Yes. In open high school, <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> as you say, it it it. In that novel, you find not just Mrs. Scott, who mm. is the main character obviously around whom everything else kind of revolves yeah but uh, Patrick Seller and 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 Donald McLeod when writing about the the Marchioness or the mm. Countess mm. later the Duchess she had all these titles uh, she she one of the things I did when I was doing my research was read a lot of the letters she wrote and she was a very good letter writer mm. and I sometimes said when talking about set adrift upon the world that reading these letters slightly to my horror I discovered I was getting quite fond of her <laughs> you were getting fond of her <laughs> yeah, yes <laughs> and similarly with Seller in a way that uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I ever got fond of Seller but yeah. uh, you but, start to be able to work out what, how they might think yeah right? you, you want to know how they yeah. operated and, and one of the intriguing things about Seller Patrick Seller was that he was I mean, in many ways, of course, he was utterly ruthless and mm. brutal. But, but he uh, is an intriguing man. He's a very intriguing yeah. figure. And, and he was a superb farmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's kind of odd in its own way because he didn't have a background in farming at yeah. all. Mm. His father was a lawyer in Elgin, in Manisha, and he'd been brought up there himself. He'd been educated in Edinburgh University. And he was a lawyer also. When he came to Sutherland, he was still in his 20s, late 20s. Yeah. But then he gets into agriculture and ultimately, of course, into sheep farming. Mm-hmm. And uh, people I know who know more about sheep farming than I do, they <laughs> still regard uh, Patrick Seller as probably the most successful mm. sheep farmer the Highlands have ever seen. Not just because he made a lot of money out of it, which yeah. he did, but, uh, but because, uh, you know, just the techniques and the sort of almost scientific way that he mm-hmm. managed sheep stocks and so hey, see, on. So it's complicated. You, can, yeah. you can't just... Uh, but I, I, I always think of Seller as somebody who was very similar in many ways to the folk of his own time, you know, his mm. contemporaries who were doing similar things in North America or Australia or whatever. Mm. Yes. There was and a sort of pioneer yeah, spirit he, to him. Yes, and he, he saw himself as bringing civilization and yeah, culture yeah. to this benighted set of people who he who he called interestingly yeah. aborigines yeah, yeah. Uh, to him the the southern people were aborigines mm. you know the native population and he he compares them quite explicitly in some of his writing yeah. to uh, to native americans yeah and, uh, so uh, so it, it's 
And so I think you have to kind of understand that. It's not sufficient just to say, well, he was a really bad guy doing mm. bad things. And, and it's interesting the way, you know, I, I suppose partly because of just what a, how he so, in a sense, beautifully encapsulated the kind of forces that were changing mm, yeah. all of this, you know, that he, he in his own person is a representation of the advance of capitalism or some yeah. such. So, I was really fascinated in the book by the story of um, Mackay and the Hudson's yeah. Bay Company. Yeah. As you were saying that Patrick Seller was sort of producing a North American or colonial experience in the Highlands, that he, he was a Highlander who was out in Canada being entrepreneurial, but coming back and forth all the time. I think that one of the things that gets flattened in the sort of primary school version of the story of the Clearances is that, you know, people went off and they were so disempowered that they couldn't come back and that there was, there was less exchange and sort of constant trafficking between Scotland and North America and Canada at the time. And I was fascinated to realise that he had gone back and forth across the Atlantic nine times. Yeah, it, well, well, exactly, yeah. He was, yes, when he, his final crossing, when he, after the Queensies, when he went off to settle in Nova Scotia, mm. at about the same age that I am now in his late 60s. Really? Which uh, is an extraordinary thing to he, he was. He seemed like a force of nature. Oh, well, he was very much, yeah. Uh, I mean, in many ways, he was a kind of troubled soul as well, mm. and that comes through in the accounts of his doings in the fur trade. But, you know, an extraordinary figure in many ways, and, you know, one of the key people in opening up what's now Manitoba and Central Scotland, mm. yeah. Central Scotland, Central Canada, generally, yeah. and indeed they, he was away out in the west of what's now the United States, long before any Americans were. So, uh, so a remarkable man. And, and then coming back to Sullivan with his... It was very common in the fur trade to have the Native American or First Nations partners. In the fur trade, these were referred to as country wives. Yeah. <laughs> very euphemistically. And uh, so anyway, he, his particular partner had died before he came back finally to Sutherland, just after 1800. But he brought back two sons, and they, uh, you know, the, again, this can all be uncovered in some detail. And these, and so I know from documentation that these two young lads, who uh, would have been darker skinned than mm, the right. Sutherland average, and were herding their father's cattle on the hill above Ascombe Moor in Strathbroda when he settled, and this is all known about. And there's a kind of fascination to me, yes, going back to this idea that these were terribly isolated communities with no contact mm. with the wider world. There are these two boys who certainly spoke Gaelic, but whose first, nat whose first language was Cree, mm. yeah. which is the language spoken to the west and southwest of Hudson Bay. And so, uh, so the, there's something kind of extraordinary about that. And, and Mackay himself, of course, is, uh, becomes partly instrumental in helping the people from Kildonan to go to what's now Winnipeg in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. The whole sort of story of, of how they got there is quite extraordinary. In the book, I say it was the worst journey ever mm. made by immigrants from Europe to North yeah. America. Thanks to Jim Hunter and his wife Evelyn for hosting us for tea in yeah. beautiful Kirk Hill up by Inverness. Mm -hmm. It was a grand day out. It was. <laughs> um, Set Adrift Upon the World is available in a fat paperback. Yes. It's a truly fascinating, suspenseful, impeccably well-researched read about mm. the clearances in Sutherland and... Uh, the knock-on effect of the clearances in North America as people from Sutherland made new lives in Canada. Yeah, both his books, um, Set Adrift and The Making of the Crofton Community, are really invaluable and good, great companion books to consider the lilies. Um, and so we urge you not only to read Jim's books, mm -hmm. yeah. but to read more of Ian Crichton-Smith too. And you can, you know, make suggestions of what his signature work is and 
discover more because there as as we see there is a lot to discover absolutely next time we'll be talking about naomi mitchison's travel light mm. a talking nest story for children published in 1952 we'll be inviting illustrious authors from our bc books children's imprint to talk about fables and fairy tales yeah a little change of pace there yep. um so thank you um for listening and thanks to kevin mcneil for his wonderful readings of ian creighton smith's poetry and to finish off here is the full version of old women join us next time old woman and she being old fed from a mashed plate as an old mare might droop across a fence to the dull pastures of its ignorance her husband held her upright while he prayed to god who is all forgiving to send down some angel somewhere who might land perhaps in his foreign wings among the gradual crops. She munched, half dead, blindly searching the spoon. Outside, the grass was raging. There I sat, imprisoned in my pity and my shame, that men and women, having suffered time, should sit in such a place, in such a state, and wished to be away, yes, to be far away with athletes, heroes, Greek or Roman men who pushed their bitter spears into a vein and would not spend an hour with such decay. Pray God, he said, we ask you God, he said. The bowed back was quiet. I saw the teeth tighten their grip around a delicate death and nothing moved within the knotted head, but only a few poor veins, as one might see, vague, wishless seaweed floating on a tide, of all the salty waters where had died too many waves to mark two more or three.